I had a, a teacher one time who regularly reminded us that all good theology ends in ethics. Uh, I would take that one step further and say that all good theology ends in worship. Worship um, is the umbrella un- over which we live and move and have our being. All good theology ends in ethics. In other words, if all your theology, if all your doctrine, if all your Bible teaching does is fill your head and swells your pride, then you don't have good doctrine. Good doctrine puts soles in our shoes, gets us out there. All good theology ends in ethics. The book of Romans could not fit that more perfectly. It divides in typical Pauline ways 11 chapters of soaring theology. And then this great pivot in 12.1, Therefore, brothers, I appeal to you in view of God's mercies. So all of what Paul had described in Romans 1.11 is under the umbrella of mercy. This great doctrine of justification, this great doctrine of sanctification, this great doctrine of sin, this great doctrine of Jesus Christ, all mercy. And it's through that lens that we therefore offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. You see how he does it? Theology leads to ethics. And there's nothing, nothing apart from our lives that is apart from, outside of, the ethical realm meaning there's no differentiation between sacred and secular. You're not one person on Monday when you punch a clock and go to work nine to five, then you are sitting here singing hymns. Not for the Christian with a holistic worldview. There's tension at the core of what another writer calls lived theology. I love that two-word expression lived theology, namely this tension, and I don't know if you feel it regularly, we we need to. We are to present ourselves to God for his service in this world without conforming to this world. Let me say that again. We are to present ourselves to God for his service in this world, in this world, without conforming to this world. Let me tell you, this is how Jesus said it in John chapter 17, one of the most glorious chapters in the Bible. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says this, I have given them, the disciples, your God, word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Implication is that the world is under the control, limited control, of the evil one. And we pointed that out last week. Verse 16 of John 17, They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So I I avoid cliches typically because we hear them and they're like, yeah, I know what that means, but we really don't. When I say, you know, we are in the world, but not of the world. Oh, yeah, I've heard that a million times since I've been a Christian. Okay, tell me what it means. 
If I were to give you a pad and a pen right now, could you write me a chunky paragraph on what it means to be in the world but not of the world? It's an exceedingly difficult thing to answer because the world is all around us. Imagine I've got a, I've got a fishbowl right here with a goldfish you know, swimming around in it, and I would ask the goldfish, pretend I'm in Nemo and he can talk back to me, the gold, and I ask the goldfish to describe water, and the goldfish looks at me and spits some of the water in my face and says, what are you, crazy? It's right here. This is the water, and that's exactly what you and I do if I were to ask you the question, what does it mean to be in the world? Well, it's, well you know, it's, it's like all around you. And that's, that's my point. It's around us. It's in us. Which is why Paul uses this present imperative when he says, stop being conformed to the pattern of the stage. The implication is that we are, they are, in first century Rome, we are in 21st century Staten Island. We are being conformed to the pattern of this age. But it's not hopeless. Paul says, stop. You can stop it. Why? Because of the mercies that I've just laid out for you. Instead, be transformed. See? You're here, but you're not going to gulp down the water, if you please, that is this culture. And we know how Paul says it. I won't read Romans 12, 1 and 2 for you again, but that's Paul's equivalent of Jesus' words in John chapter 17 with regard to in the world but not of the world. We're to serve God and neighbor in the world without being conformed to it. And I contend and have been contending, and if God's willing, will contend for at least one more week after this one, that there may not be a greater challenge today to this type of nonconformity to which we're called than in the realm of government and politics. How do we love God and neighbor without becoming like the world? Without so identifying with a political party that we fail to be the church? A sign of the coming kingdom of God that, as we pointed out last week from Romans 14, 17, is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the million-dollar question is, as people of Staten Island walk by or interact with us, do they see this outpost of the kingdom identified as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Something's different about those people. The beat that they hear and to which they march is not the same as the flow. Paul helps us answer the question that I just asked right here in Romans 13, 1 to 7. Last week, we looked at the command and the reason for the command in verse 1. I set you the narrow context in the book of Romans and the wider context of the New Testament. I won't rehearse all of that this week. And then we looked at just the first verse. Today, we get through the fourth verse. So we'll look at verses 1 to 4 this morning. God willing, we'll finish 5, 6, and 7 next week. So this week, we're going to look at the implication that Paul puts before us. There's a therefore, so we need to look at that. There's an implication that he's going to give us a second reason. Okay, so this argument's hanging together within the context of love. 12.9 of Romans, right? Let love be genuine. 
And then you heard Kate read 13.7 goes right into 13.8, picking up the language of what we owe people. Owe nothing to anybody except love. And so this talk about politics and government is wedged in between a, a community that's marked by radical love, such that they love even their enemies and do not take up arms when wronged. Instead, they leave it to God. And yeah, I'm flesh and blood like you too, and there's a million and one yabats. The problem is there are no yabats in the text. But I'm going to attempt to address some of the yabats next week, God willing, because this just sounds so black and white. Like, like all the time, like no exceptions. Where does a society go if we don't, you know, retaliate? Let's begin with last week, the command and its reason, very quickly. Romans 13, 1, last week we saw the command. I said to you, difficult passage, easy to understand, difficult to carry out. So 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, full stop. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person, no exceptions, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, weak, strong. You get that weak, strong thing going on in 14 and 15. We'll get there eventually, God willing. Let every person, everyone, no exceptions, be subject, subject meaning a willing, a willing submission, willingly placing oneself under those raised up by God. That in and of itself is a challenge. It's much easier to place yourself in subjection to people you agree with, people you love, people you want there. The rubber really hits the road when your guy doesn't get in. Because this doesn't change depending upon who's sitting in Albany or Washington, D.C. or any other state capital. That's why it's so radical, because Paul's calling these people to step out of the shadow of Lord Caesar and say, Jesus is Lord. This is in the context, remember I said, I I used some language yesterday, last week, describing how you view the present from the future. And there are those that are in first century Rome who believe that because they're now justified that they are citizens of another realm, and they are, but the mistake that they made was in thinking that their citizenship is in heaven. That no, that no longer means I've got to abide by the rules here on earth, especially the rules that God has laid down. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. 
Yes, you are a stranger and an alien. You are an exile. Yes, your citizenship is in heaven. Yes, you are waiting for the new Jerusalem, spiritual Jerusalem. Yes, you're waiting for, yes, you are seeking the city that is yet to come. But Paul says, until that happens, until Jesus comes back or you're taken home, you abide by those he has placed in authority over you. The reason for the command follows right along, still in the first verse, because there's no authority except from God. That's the sermon title. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted, literally ordered by God. That's the rest of verse 1 in Romans chapter 13. And, and, and again, I'm flesh and blood like you, and the, everything within me, well, not everything, I'm growing a little bit, but lots of stuff within me simply says, yeah, but. But there's no yeah, buts there yet. So let's take it on its face and feel the difficulty and struggle with it rather than just dismissing it. That's, that terrifies me, and I'm not being melodramatic. It terrifies me. And this is the point right here. Right here is the point. Because right here, this verse is not lining up with my worldview, with your worldviews. And so what ends up happening is that we make this little move in our minds just to move it out of the way. That's what I fear is that we won't let the text be the text to the degree that it's actually going to change us. This is exactly 12.2. This is what Paul's getting after. Don't conform. It's this stuff that that will transform you. See, the danger is that if it doesn't, then you continue to conform and you're out in the cold in terms of understanding what the will of God is. You see how all that hangs together? And this is why I do this and this. Because I know how it churns on the inside of me. And if it happens to me who sits with this for hours, and I get 30 to 40 minutes of you each week, I can only imagine what it's doing to you especially those of you who are older than I am and set in your ways and thinking, way too late for me to do any of this, pal. No, it isn't. Like marriage, this this caused a couple of heads to bob up. I didn't mean for it to last week. Like marriage, government is an aspect of God's common grace. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian to get married. You don't have to be a Christian to receive favor from the government. It's all part of God's common grace, his goodness to his image bearers, even if they don't believe that he exists. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He doesn't wait for you to get to some place down the line and say, now you're good enough. Jesus' resurrection is not to make decent people better. 
Jesus died so that sinners could be saved, so that dead people could be lifted from death. Let's be sure we get that straight. Like marriage, government is an aspect of God's common grace. It is a temporary means for creating and maintaining order according to God's design. Paul, I know you love Roberta, but when you enter into glory, you will no longer be married to her which must pierce your heart. But then I'm going to come right aside of you, brother, and tell you, yes, but the fellowship that you'll share with her in glory in the face of Jesus Christ will far surpass your best days with her as a married man. You feeling me? Which is right when I have the rare day when my wife is driving me out of my mind, I keep reminding myself that it's only temporary. This too shall pass. This is, this is the unfair advantage I have about having a public pulpit. I am not looking at my wife right now because I know that when we get home this afternoon, the field will get leveled. Because if I have to think about that once every five years, she has to think about that once every five minutes living with this one. Government, like marriage, is only temporary. It's, it's only temporary. When we get there, there's only going to be one Lord, and he's not going to need a cabinet. It's temporary. It's a blessing from God to maintain order. To some degree, it could always be worse. You think about that. That's not a throwaway line. It could always be worse. You know, thank God. Thank God for the blessing of the peace that's in this room right now. Are any of you afraid about somebody barreling through this door in a minute and taking your life? Has any of you even thought of that possibility? You, you, you don't. Are any of you concerned about walking out of this building in another 20 minutes or half hour or so and getting in your car and going home and fretting some sort of disaster? You're probably not. Well, there are some people on this planet that are. So whatever you think about X, Y, and Z, look at the blessing that you're sitting in the middle of right now. If you think this is bad, go to Bangladesh. Go to India, go to North Korea. Don't take for granted this gift that you have right now. This is a gift from God. The fact that there's any semblance of order at all, and it's more than just a semblance, is something you should thank God for every day. Every day. All government authority, as we said last week, is derived. Remember I told you, John 19, 11, 
Pilate looked at Jesus and said, do you know who I am? Jesus looked at him and said, oh, I know who you are, and you're nothing if my father didn't give it to you. We may puzzle over why God puts bad people in, in, in leadership positions. We'll talk more about that, God willing, next week. But let me remind you, as I did last week, that God raises up rulers for good. He also raises up rulers for judgment. And I forthrightly challenged you and me last week to keep that open as a category, that people are placed where they are by God's divine providence, and it may very well be that he, she is an instrument of God's judgment. We don't see that's a category because of the peace that we have, because of the security that we have and enjoy oftentimes without even thinking about. We don't think for a second that anybody could be put in office to bring judgment against us. We can read the newspapers and we can watch TV and we can see messes going on in other nations and say, well, they're getting what they deserve. That would never happen here. In Romans 9.17, we're told a little bit about why some of this happens. So, so in Romans 9.17, Paul quotes the scriptures from, from Exodus, Exodus chapter 9, and says this in Romans 9.17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, this is God speaking to Pharaoh now, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Pharaoh now, you don't want to be under the Pharaoh's government. Okay. But, but Pharaoh's been placed there by God. Now, to what end? Romans 9, 17. For this very purpose, God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. For what purpose? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. I forthrightly put that in front of you, Christians, and ask for you to have that in your notes that says, this is part of the reason why God raises up certain people, because he wants to manifest his power and because he wants his name to go forward. In other words, if he puts this this tyrant in office, and it shatters the dreams of many people, and they turn and find the true God. Okay, so now in verse 2, there's the therefore. This is the second, this is today's now. Therefore, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Did you get it? So this is the implication. Submit to the governing authorities because God has put them there, every one of them. Verse 2, Paul now draws out a strong implication for those who think they can disregard the authority that God has appointed. This is what Paul's addressing in first century Rome. And man, oh man, is it a relevant message in 21st century New York City. Because we don't like it, so on that. If I don't like this, if I don't like him, if I don't like her, I ain't obeying. And so what does that do? What that does is it elevates personal autonomy over God's authority. I need you to feel that. Because if you're pouting, because if you're complaining, because if you're refusing, 
to subject yourself to one that God has placed in a position of authority, then what you're doing, and this is exactly what's happening right now, is that I am elevating my autonomy and my perceived rights above the authority of God. That's what the text says. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Implication, those who resist will incur judgment. This is pretty serious stuff. I actually wrote those words right here. Pretty serious stuff. If we resist, if we show hostility against the authorities, if we elevate personal autonomy above God's authority, we resist what God has appointed. And if we do that, we will incur... Now, here's the struggle right here. We incur judgment. We incur judgment by that authority, or do we incur God's judgment? I'm going to argue that it's God's judgment, because in the next couple of verses, it's basically going to say that. Now, judgment, not in the sense I don't believe, in the sense that wrath is poured out upon you and you lose your salvation kind of thing. I don't think that's what's going on. And whatever God means by incurring judgment for disobeying those he's put in authority, that's between you and God at the end of the day. I'm not going to go so far out on that line and say, here's what's going to happen to you. Brothers and sisters, I am in this boat with you. I can see by your facial expressions, your body language, that this is making some of you really tense. I know, believe me, because many of you have let me know how close to the bone this is. All I'm asking you very, very simply, all I'm asking you very simply is whether or not my finger is on the text. I am not propagating my opinions. I am not grinding an axe. Believe me, if there were other things I could be doing right now, I might be choosing them. But three plus years ago, we started Romans, and we knew one day we would get to Romans 13. Now he gives us a second reason as we close up our, our, our time here now. It'll be a few more minutes here. For, for rulers, now here, see the four? See the four there in verse three? For rulers, he gives us a second reason now. For rulers are not a terror, meaning they're not a source of fear to good conduct, but only to bad conduct. In other words, if you as a Christian are abiding by the laws of the land, you should not have to worry about the authorities getting in your grill. Should not have to. For rulers are not a source of fear to good conduct, but only to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. Now, I, I promise you I'm going to come back to some of these difficulties next week. I promise you, because they're fraught with difficulties. 
Verse 4, for he is God's servant, first of two times, that the state is called God's servant. The word literally is deacon. It's literally deacon. So the state is God's deacon for your good. Okay, so your government has a divine mandate on it to do you good for being a good citizen. And if it does not, it'll give an account to the one who holds all authority. See, that, that's our blessed hope. We don't need, we don't need vengeance by the end of the afternoon. The radical call to those who are under the mercies of God is that the way you do not conform to the pattern of the age is that you allow love to cover a multitude of sins and don't take vengeance into your own hands. God help us, right? God help us. Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, still verse 4, but if you do wrong, be afraid. You, you go rob a bank this afternoon, and you don't have any fear in you at all. You have pretty big problems. Your spirit-led conscience, I trust, first of all, wouldn't let you do something like that. But then secondly, if for whatever reason you did, you would feel more than a little bit of a pang of conscience. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant, the deacon, second time, deacon of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Ah, that's why I don't have to take personal vengeance. Why? Because God has ordained an instrument to carry out on earth his vengeance. So the state, very simply, is to reward good and to punish wrongdoing as an instrument in God's hands, temporarily, until every nation, tongue, and tribe stands before him and faces judgment and gives an account. You see how it works? Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword. Notice, and this is where, this is where the fur will really fly. And this is hard. I'm confessing it to you, brothers and sisters. This is a struggle for me right here, right now. I mean, notice bearing the sword is a euphemism for power to punish. You and I, as Christians, do not have the power to punish. The power that we have is to turn the other cheek. The power that we have is to love our enemies. And God asks us, God asks us, and yea, commands us, to be subjected to the governing authorities who will give an account as to whether or not they, in fact, properly punished wrongdoing while they were in power. It's the difference between waiting at a light next to an officer and speeding past an officer to go through a light. Earlier this week, on my drive to school, I pulled up to a red light, 
right next to an officer. I had no beads of sweat on my forehead at all. Now, if that light was yellow, and I saw that cop sitting there, and I put my pedal to the metal and went flying by him through that red light, and then I hear, woo, 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 I ought to be afraid. Why? Because the governing authority is now coming, I pray, and this is where it's going to get really rough. I pray not to kill me, but to inflict the proper punishment for disobedience. That's the difference. I have no fear sitting next to a police officer waiting in traffic. I go zipping by him. I should fear. Why? Because I'm disobeying the governing authorities that God has put in place over me for my good. So, to sum it up, all governing authority is derived. Jesus in, Rome, in Matthew 28, 18 said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. By whom? Obviously his father. So all authority, capital A authority, is Jesus's. It's all his. Put your Bibles together with me. Now, so I'm going to drive home this afternoon. I'm going to go down Highland Boulevard. I'm going to go past the 122. And the banner that's going to fly over the roof of the 122 is that you have authority to maintain order, but Jesus is Lord. So the governing authorities are, are servants. They serve God, whether they reject God or not. They serve God. And part, I would contend, part of the church's function is to remind government of that end. No, 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 you have gone too far. No, 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 you are allowing too much injustice. They are to approve the good for human flourishing. You and I are flourishing. As far as I know you all in this room, you and I are flourishing because of the way the boundary lines have been drawn up for you and for me. The government ought not to impinge upon the good. They are, however, to avenge the wrong as an instrument in God's hand. Even, I would argue here, even if they have to do so by using force. Not an option for the Christian individual. A divine mandate for the governing authority. But you know where that goes. Go home this afternoon and Google revenge movies. I told you a couple of weeks ago, the first, the first two articles that came up when I Googled this about a month or so ago, the first one was 50 best revenge movies. I thought, 50? And then the article underneath that did it even better. 100 best revenge movies. And it, it's, it's, it sells big. Government doesn't do their job, I'm taking it up into my own hands. Where do we go from here? 
the Word of God gives us two directives and one nagging question. The two directives are do good and pray. I know that doesn't sound spectacular, but the two things that the Scriptures tell us to do from this point on is to do good and to pray. 1 Thessalonians. I'm almost done. Bear with me, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11. Urge your brothers to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let me forthrightly, gently challenge you. If you put 1 Thessalonians 5.15 on the refrigerator this week and tried to live that out, what would the world look like? If you sought to repay no one evil for evil, but instead sought the good of one another within the body and to everyone, what would... What would have to go on in your life for you to do good to somebody you can't stand? First Peter, Peter, you know, Peter the hothead, Peter the one who lopped off Malchus's ears when the Roman cohort swords jangling came to take Jesus away and Jesus looked at them and said, I've been among you for all of this time. You know I'm not an insurrectionist. You've seen me live by love and now you come with clubs and swords and you're ready to take me captive as though I was leading an insurrection. He says, what are you all about? Peter, Peter being Peter, whips out his sword, chops off his ear. Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, what are you doing? Picks up the ear from the ground, touches Mal Malchus's side of his head, heals him. Massive, massive exchange in that moment. Peter, a little bit later on in his life, will write this. 1 Peter 2, beginning in 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Wow, that's pretty strong language. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, free gospel free, free from the power of sin and death. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We'll talk more about those words next week. God is the only one we fear, but we give honor where honor is due. Let me take you to Jeremiah 29, a well-known passage and one of the most misused passages in all of the Bible. In Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4, Jeremiah has written a letter to the exiles from God. Jeremiah 29.4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. Now they've been, they've been moved out now by the, by the machine that is Babylon. They've been taken out of the homeland, and they're in Babylon now. So you can imagine, right? 
Verse 5, Jeremiah 29, God tells them to rebel, riot, insurrect, get the heck out of there and get back home. This is what he says. Build houses and live in them in Babylon, in Babylon, in exile territory, which is where you and I are now. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage and that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. Welfare is literally the word shalom. But seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare will find your welfare. You ought to pray for and work for good things on Staten Island because if Staten Island goes well, you go well. But he doesn't tell them because they're in exile that they ought to kick up the dust and press their autonomy to get what they want. He says, no, 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 no. I have you there. Now, mind you now, Jeremiah ends with Babylon being destroyed by God through the hands of Assyria. So don't think for a second that God telling his exiles to make do in Babylon blesses the evil empire that is Babylon. God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to take care of them in due time. But for right now, where you are, grow where you're planted. You're in exile. You're not at home. But marry, build houses, plant gardens, pray for your turf, your little square, that God would cause it to prosper. Because if my square prospers, I prosper. Do good, pray. This is, this is the last one right here. First Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, you know this well. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. 1 Timothy 2, 2. Kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead, here it is, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. See, the whole point of the scriptures is that we have become way too invested in the now. We live and we seek to hold on to our turf and argue for our guy or our gal, thinking and giving the clear indication that this is all I have. That's what's driving me out of my mind. Not only in the church, but in the school. I hear it all over the place. The world's about to end. And I say to people, yeah, so? And they freak out. Hold on to it loosely. Christians right now are not being transformed. They are conforming to the pattern of this age and giving no other indication to anybody that they are fully invested in the political game as much as anybody else is like we had nothing else to live for. Where is our hope? Is your hope wrapped up with who's sitting in the White House? For real? It's temporary. 
Grow where you're planted. That's where God has you right now in obedience to his word. Let's do that, church. Let's be a kingdom outpost and not worry about these things. And the nagging question, which is the introduction to next week, is this. And this is the, yeah, but. What if? What if? What if the government asks us to disobey God? Is there a place for nonviolent resistance? Let me put a point on it to end. How, how do you read these verses in Romans 13? How do you read these verses if you live in Bangladesh? How do you read these verses if you live in Honduras? How do you read these verses if you live in South Africa? How do you read these verses if you live in Uzbekistan? Those four places that I just gave you are four places where our people live or have lived. So it's real. It's real for the guy sitting in the booth right now. It's real for Nadia. It's real for those we know in Bangladesh and South Africa. How do you read Romans 13 when the inspired author says, submit to the governing authorities, and they're running roughshod over your people. Let me bring it a little closer to home. How do you read these verses in America if you're black? How do you, how do you read these verses in America if you're brown? How do you read these verses in America if you're a Native American? These are the real difficult questions we'll try to answer if the good Lord is willing when we gather together next week. I ask you, Father, for help even in this moment. I thank you for difficult texts. I pray as I always do, Father, sometimes not out loud, but last week and this week, I pray insofar as that I have done this text right and I pray you won't let us move off of it. And insofar as I've inserted anything or said something that is contrary to the scriptures, then I pray that you'd be merciful to these, my brothers and sisters, and strike it from their mind. But where the truth of the gospel has been proclaimed, I pray, I pray that you would bring it home. And I ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, it's appropriate that in the middle of these uh, texts, we would uh, be celebrating communion. And I, I apologize for where we are with the clock. Uh, please forgive me uh, on that. Um, each and every one of you, when you arrived, you should have received uh, the uh, communion elements on, on your seat when you arrived.
Um, communion is a special time, and it's a, it's, it, it clearly uh, signals to us the unity that is the body of Christ, and it was what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. He gathered his disciples together with him, and he took a single loaf, and he broke it. He broke the loaf, containing much more than just mere symbolism, but he broke the loaf, he blessed it, and then he passed it. And he said, take a piece of this. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. As I tell you, each month, it would have been a single cup. It would have been the cup of blessing in the meal. He blessed that as well and passed it along. They could not have missed the unifying the unifying motifs, the one cup and the one loaf. It's such a precious set of symbols for us to see, and yet it's beyond a symbol as well. I don't want you to hurry past this. I want you to see that this is what Christ died for. Christ died for the unity of the body of Christ. And this is one of the things that I'm pleading for, that we understand that we don't create unity, but Paul will tell us in Ephesians that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the power of Jesus Christ. These elements, and I hope before too long we can put these behind us, is a cellophane top that comes off first. Don't pull them both. There are two tabs. Don't pull them both because you'll have juice on you. I pray not you do that. Take the top off, and there's the wafer, and this wafer represents this, this loaf that I just broke. It represents the body of Christ which was given for you. We humble ourselves before our glorious God. We receive this with thanksgiving, and we're mindful of the fact that our strife, that our differences are laid aside, that we might hold on to that which we have in common, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. And as I've just said, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Don't over-squeeze this now. I know I tell you this every month. If you squeeze it too much and you pull that tab back, it's going to pop. So be careful with that. There are extras around, so if you can't get it open, just raise your hand and we'll be sure to help you as quickly as we possibly can. Just hold it up. You don't need to raise it over your head, but just hold it up so I can see. I don't want to go on without anybody. I want to be sure we're all ready. Good. Jesus said, this blood is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for in so doing you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you repeat with me as we often do, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again.